All right, bring it in, bring it in, everybody. Welcome. We are back in the book of Romans, and I've got a question for you this morning. What is love? I told myself I was not going to sing the song, and I'm not. I'm not going to sing the song. You're welcome. There, Joy. I knew I'd get a, a, an ovation from Joy. Thank you. Yeah, there's a reason why I'm not on the, the worship team. All right, so we're in the book of Romans, Romans 13 today, and I'm going to attempt to answer that question from the scripture. What is love? But before we do that, I wanted to start where I think a lot of us start when we have questions. What do you do when you want to know something? You Google it, right? You Google it. We Google it. So that's what I did. I Googled the question, what is love? And I also decided I'm not going to do what what we should do and like read through the articles. And I'm going to do what most of us do. We don't have time to read articles. We just read the headline and the tagline, right? We just skim through it. So I Googled it and I said, I'm just going to look at the, the, the page of Google and go down the list and whatever I can read on Google, that's what I'm going to put down. So here are a couple of the headlines and taglines from Google on what love is. The very first entry, love involves emotions and behaviors characterized by passions intimacy, and commitment. Actually, it's not horrible for the internet. Not off to a bad start, right? Okay. Another entry, number two, says that love is an emotion that keeps people bonded and committed to one another. Eh. What happens if the emotion goes away? Okay, third entry. Third entry cites so-called experts. Buckle up for this one. Love is, and I quote, a magical embodied sensation sparked from an all-chemical reaction of witnessing another person's heart and soul and accepting, appreciating, and celebrating them just as they are in all their perfect imperfection. (laughs) Barf. (laughs) Right? This person thinks they're an expert. It's like, man, too wordy. Calm down, brother. Or, Or woman. I don't know who wrote that. But anyways... The next article, this is number four, says that love is defined as an intense feeling of deep affection. Intense feeling of deep affection. And then number five, finally we get to a dictionary, which is a novel thought, dictionary.com's entry. Love is an intense, deep affection for another person. Okay, that's what the internet has to say about what love is. And I'm not going to start off this message by harping on the internet. I'm actually a really big fan right? Super helpful. The fact that we have the world's information available to us with a few little clicks and and stuff, that's amazing. I would be so much poorer if I had to pay someone to fix my car. I just, I just YouTube it. And there's some, some Joe Schmoes figured out a problem with my 1999 Buick Park Avenue, and they've got videos that just walk you right through it. I love the internet, and I love YouTube. It's amazing, right? So I'm not going to dog on the internet, but I want us all to realize that the internet has presented us with a little bit of a problem, right? With so much information, so many competing ideas out there, my question is, how do we know who we're supposed to listen to? How do we know what truth is? How do we know where is a good place to read, right? Who's a good person to trust and to read? With all the information that's out there so easily accessible to us all, how are we supposed to decipher what's true? What's true? And what might be very well-meaning, but is just a total load of garbage, right? Masquerading as truth. How are we supposed to figure that out? 
I think in this day and age, we need a bedrock of truth that we can turn to now more than ever. Don't you think? I do. Especially when we're talking about something as monumental as love. What is love? In Google's top five search results about what love is, we're given several different answers. We're told that love is an emotion. We were told that love is a behavior. We're told that love is a commitment. Love is a feeling that bonds people, one of them said. The other one, the the expert, right? A magical sensation of chemicals in our brain. All five of those just from the first headlines on Google. So my question is, where are you and I supposed to turn for truth? When we have questions of real meanings, of, of importance, where do we turn to have those answered? The internet is fine and has a wealth of information, but how do you know what you're reading is true? I'm not here to tell you this morning that we should all just throw our smartphones out. I don't think we should. I think they're useful tools, if maybe a little bit addicting at times. Maybe just put them away for a while, right? We don't have to throw them out, though. But I do want, I do want you to know that we would all be better when we have questions, especially of meaning and significance, to start not with Google, but to start with God and his word. God and his word will give us the tools that we need to evaluate what we read and what we hear and listen to online, the so-called experts of our day. The word of God is our bedrock truth. And so with that, I'd invite you to turn with me to Romans 13. We're going to be verses 8 through 14 today. We're going to look at Romans 13 with a lens towards love. What does Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what does God tell us love is? We'll read it and then we'll walk through it together, starting in verse 8 of Romans 13. Paul writes, Let no doubt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, I think the kids are done too. (laughs) All right, Paul transitions us into a discussion on love with a word about debt, a word about debt. If you remember, this is a couple weeks ago, in chapter 12, Paul spoke to us about our debt to the body of Christ, to the church. He says that we owe it to God's family, that's the church, we owe it to God's family to humbly serve by learning what our gifts are and using them within the context of community and life together. We also owe it to the church to give of our time, of our talent, of our treasure, to love one another, to do the one another's of scripture, right? And then Paul tells us that, our love ought to be sincere, that we should hate what is evil, we should cling to what is good. You may remember that message. We spent two weeks kind of fleshing that out. 
And then in uh, chapter 13 from last week, Wes pointed out that we are in debt to our governing authorities. Kind of a, a hard message, right? We don't always love our governing authorities, but Scripture calls us to obey. To obey unless it's sinful. Even if we think it's stupid, we're still called to obey. We're still called to respect and submit and obey to the authorities that God has established. And just in case anyone thinks that I'm being pardoned by saying we should submit unless it's sinful, even if it's stupid, I preached a message in First Peter when Trump was in office, when the Republicans were in office or whatever, so you can go back and I, I don't, I'm not saying one politician is stupid, one is other. I just think in our conversations... We get really upset about our politicians and say, this guy's an idiot and this guy's stupid and this, that, and the other thing, right? And we don't think we have to listen. And what scripture says is like, no, we're, we're called to obey and submit to our authorities, to respect them and to, to come under them because God's established them unless it's sinful. If it's sinful, then we, we divert to God as our ultimate authority. It's really, it's a tough thing, but Paul says we have a debt. We have a, de- a debt to submit to the authorities God has established. Submit even if it's stupid, but not if it's sinful. Along those lines, just to be clear, Paul makes sure that we're mopping up what he's spilling. So he's writing about about the governments, and just to make sure that we understand what he's talking about, he comes right out and he says it, pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Pay your bills promptly. So in terms of debt, Paul says that we have a debt to the church, to one another, to serve in the church. We have a debt to society, and to our government to submit to the authorities that God has put there. And then he sums it all up in verse 8 of chapter 13. He says, let no debt remain outstanding. Pay your debts. Pay your debts. Then he continues. He says, but realize there is one debt you will never be able to repay, and that is the debt you owe to love one another. To love one another. Now, I read one commentator who was saying, well, Paul's saying, well, you can't ever fulfill this debt, so don't even bother trying. And that's completely bogus. That's not right. He's not saying that this debt is is too hard for you to repay, so you can't, so just don't try. No, he's saying, understand that you'll never be able to pay the debt that you owe to God, but that shouldn't stop you from trying. That shouldn't stop you from trying. He's saying the debt is so large that you you need to never stop trying. You need to never stop trying. And why is that? Is it because the person that we're trying to love deserves it? Not necessarily. It it, it has nothing to do with them. Our our debt to love has nothing to do with other people. The the love debt that we owe is not owed to our brothers and sisters. It's It's owed to God. It's owed to God. You see, love, true love, sincere love that hates what is evil, that loves what is good, real love is sourced in and from God. God is the author of love. He's the one who shows us what it means to love. He gives definition to love. Contrary to what culture says, love is not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion or some sentimental idea. No. Love is a deep and abiding affection. It's a commitment that motivates us that motivates a person to do whatever it takes to bring out the best in others, even if that means sacrifice, self-sacrifice. 
You all know the verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. John 3.16. John says in another place, 1 John 4.10, he says, and this is love. Not that we loved God, we didn't, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul says that because of God, because of what he was willing to give of himself for the love of you and I, he says, we owe him. We owe him an infinite debt. There is no length that he did not go to to give for us. And because of that gift, you and I are forever in his debt. Now this fact that love is a debt we owe to God is a freeing thing. You say, why? Why is it freeing? Because it means that we don't get to ask whether or not they deserve it. You find yourself asking yourself that? Man, this person doesn't really deserve my love. As a Christian, understanding the lengths that God went for us means that we don't even get to entertain that because it's not about them. It's not about whether they deserve it or not. Chances are they don't. But those of us who have grasped a hold of the gospel understand that neither did we. And yet, God so loved us that he willingly gave up his son so that we could know and walk in that love. Folks, I'm not saying this is easy. I understand there are some really, really hard people to love. There are. They may be in your family. They may be your neighbors across the street. I I get it. There are lots of people who, from a worldly standpoint, don't deserve your love. But it's not about what they deserve. Love is is about the debt we owe to God. The debt we owe to Jesus, who loved us even when we didn't deserve it. And again, just to be clear, God's not expecting us to pay this debt in full, right? He knows that we can't. But the reality is that if you've received the gift of God's love and incurred this debt, the vastness of that debt, the extravagance of the gift of his son, it will change you. It will create a sense of gratitude in your heart where instead of asking the question, how much must I love? How much... How many times do I have to forgive? Instead of asking that question of whether they deserve my love or not, no, the question that we have, those of us who've responded to the love of Jesus in the gospel, the question God's love leaves floating constantly through our mind and our heart is, well, if God would love even me, how could I not also love them? How could I not love them? If God would love me, how could I not also love others? See, the fact of, that God's love makes us indebted doesn't mean we spend the rest of our lives trying to earn his love. We can't. We can never pay that debt. That's silly, and that's not what the gospel says. The debt we feel is not one of trying to earn God's love, but it's one of gratitude, where you and I get to become a conduit of God's love to others. Make sense? It's foundational. Again, because it means that the source of our love for others does not rest with them. It's not about whether or not they deserve it. That doesn't even factor into it. No, God first loved us, so, therefore, we are called to love others, period. The first thing Paul tells us from this section of Scripture about love is that love is a debt. 
It's a debt we owe to God. Along with that, Paul says that love is also the fulfillment of the law. If you look at verse 8 and verse 10, he says it two times in there. And sandwiched right between those two uh, phrases, he quotes a little bit from Matthew. He also quotes some Old Testament commands, but he quotes Jesus coming from Matthew. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40, here Jesus is asked, what's the, what's the most important law? Just tell me, boil it down. What's, what's the one thing God wants from me? Verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, Paul is weaving Jesus' understanding of the law into what it means to love. And he sums it up like this. Love does no harm. Love does no harm. More specifically, Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the law, and in fulfilling the law of God, it does no harm. This means, church, that love is something more than just an emotion. It has to be. Because it involves doing harm or not doing harm. It involves doing right and following the law or not doing right. It's not just a feeling. There's something more wrapped up into it than that. There has to be. So I think we could say from this section here, I think if we summed it up, I think we could say that love is obedience to God's law that does no harm. Love is obedience to God's law that does no harm. It's obedience to God's law for the good of one's neighbor, to say it positively. You might be thinking, well, who is my neighbor? You wouldn't be the only person ever asked that question. Jesus, in response to that question, tells a parable. You've probably heard of it. The Good Samaritan. You can go read it later. Google it. The Good Samaritan. You'll find it. You'll find the point of that story is that whoever God brings into your sphere that you have an opportunity to do harm or good to is your neighbor. That's your neighbor. Now, I don't know about you. If we say that that love is obedience to God's law that does no harm, I don't know if there is a point that we could make about love that is more timely for us than this, than this moment in history. You say, why? Because our culture has lost its minds in regards to what it means to love, especially when we start talking about the law of God. Now, it's true that God's law is never going to make you right before him. It's true. Can't get to heaven by following the laws. That's why Jesus came, right? If you try and live a perfect life according to the law, one, you can't do it. You're not going to be perfect. You can't. And if you try, apart from Jesus, you and I will spend an eternity in hell. That's what scripture teaches, right? But don't forget the beginning part of Romans. How are we saved? Are we saved by rule following, by following the law? No. We're saved by grace, through faith, alone, in Jesus. Period. Jesus didn't say, you did a good job from the cross, did he? Wow, you're doing great, really trying to keep that. No, he said it's finished. Meaning, I did it. It's done. We're saved by grace, through faith, alone, in Jesus. Now, the problem is, Sometimes when we talk about grace, which is amazing and we need it and that's how salvation comes. Sometimes when we talk about that, 
we start to think that God's law is garbage and we should just forget all about it. And that's not true. It's not how we get into heaven, but it doesn't mean that it's stupid or that we should just throw it out, right? No, it's actually incredibly helpful. God's laws are incredibly helpful. We should not throw them out. Again, it's true. Obeying God's law can't save you. But just because we don't depend on our ability to obey God's laws to get saved doesn't mean that we still shouldn't strive to live obediently to them. You say, why? It's because God's law shows us practically how to love, what love looks like in action. Paul, to illustrate, gives us a few examples, right? He lists some of the commandments for us. Adultery, not so loving, he says, right? Murder, super unloving thing to do. (laughs) Thank you, that was supposed to be a joke. (laughs) Theft, not loving. Disrespecting someone else's property, not loving. No, coveting. You say, what is coveting? It's a good question. It's an over-desire, a God-level desire. Not like from God, but like at the, at the level of God. An over-desire for something that we don't have that controls us. I want that, I gotta have it, or I'm not gonna be fulfilled. Coveting. Has coveting, that lust and passion for, for something that you don't have that others have but you want, has it ever produced love in your life? Try more like unhelpful comparison feeling pretty garbage about yourself because you don't have this, that, or the other thing. Jealousy, right? Coveting, not loving. You see, we live in a culture right now where the whole world is telling us, disobey God. Don't do what he said. Do what you want. Follow your heart. Don't listen to the Bible. It's outdated. It's backward. The most popular one at the moment, it's bigoted. Folks, the Bible paints for us a completely different picture. It says that the obedient thing to God is the loving thing. Obeying God is the loving thing. If you want to do no harm, please do not follow culture or society or the latest trend on Instagram. No, follow God and his word. The loving thing is the obedient thing. And here's where we need to take note of this. Here's here's what we all need to take note of. Paul's warning us not to get the idea in our heads that we know more than God. He says we should be careful, especially when talking about how to love. We should be careful not to think that we are wiser than God in determining what will hurt or what will help someone. Tim Keller in his commentary, if you've noticed I've quoted him, I've been reading that along with the sermon. Romans for you. Tim Keller. He says, usually when we talk about the loving thing, what we really mean is the comfortable thing. That which will give the person the least disturbance or stress. After all, you said from verse 10, love does no harm. Don't disturb. Don't make people uncomfortable. But, he continues, only God knows what we and our neighbors need ultimately. Why? Because he's the one who built our souls and our hearts and he knows what we need. The law, therefore, Keller says, is God's way of saying, you want to do your neighbor no harm? Here's how. Follow these guidelines. Follow these love lines, not your own instincts, 
or wisdom. Church, this is why as long as I am a part of the leadership here, and Wes is in the leadership, and the elders that you have chosen are in the leadership, this is why we will never shy away from speaking the truth that God has outlined in the Bible. Now, hopefully we will endeavor to do so winsomely, with gentleness and respect and love, but I want you to hear me say that we will not compromise what God has said. We will champion biblical marriage between one man and one woman. We will champion what it means to be a man and biblical masculinity. We will champion what it means to be a female and biblical femininity. We will champion biblical parenting and whatever else culture says is offensive and bigoted. We will champion those things not because we hate our world, but because we love it and because God loves it. Because we understand that the way to thrive in this life is to follow God's design because he authored it and he's the creator and he knows what's best. He doesn't want to steal joy. He wants to maximize it for everyone. And because we believe that, we will champion what God calls is good. We will hate what is evil and we will cling to what is good. Love is a debt. Love is also the fulfillment of the law which seeks to do no harm to one's neighbor's. Love also keeps an eternal perspective. That's what verse 11 is all about. If you throw that up there. He makes a little shift here. You see, it's easy in this life to make the mistake of thinking that this life is all there is. This is why folks get so upset about politics and issues in government. We've got politicians on both sides doing things that fly in the face of common sense sometimes. And we get really angry because we understand that if we don't follow God's best, then less than human thriving is going to come into our society. And that can get us real angsty, can it? We want to leave the world better than we found it for our kids. Absolutely. But friends, let me hear you. Please hear this. Do not fear. Do not fear. For the Christian, I love this. This is not mine. I stole it from someone. I forget who it is, but it's mine now. (laughs) For the Christian... This is as close to hell as you and I will ever be. This is as close to hell as you and I will ever be. And not to step on anyone's toes, but can we just be real for a second? Even with inflation and all the craziness going on, in America, we've got it pretty good. We're living a pretty decent life, all things considered. Also, Jesus is coming back. Yeah, there's that, right? Here's here's what that means. There is hope. There is hope. I'm a parent. I get it. I have little kids. I understand the idea of sending them out into the crazy. That's not a great feeling. But we have hope. Do not fear. We have hope. Jesus is coming back, and until he does, he has put us in this place to be ambassadors for that hope, to champion the good of God, and to say, listen, there is a new and better way to be human. How's it working for you? Following the ways of the world, right? How's that working? That's where he goes on to the next part. He says, put, don't, don't do the deeds of, of darkness. Put on the armor of light, He says, love protects, it guards us. It protects us from what? From ourselves, from our sinful desires. 
Again, from the text, let me ask you this. What good has ever come from carousing and drunkenness? Do you all know what that carousing? It's not a word we use, but it's like wild parties, drunkenness, orgies. What good has ever come? How much love and affection was ever spurred on by binge drinking? What good for society as a whole has ever come from crazy frat parties? Who in here wants a frat house to go up next to their home? Yeah, no one. What about sexual immorality and debauchery? These two words, I I love Paul. They are so all-encompassing. Sexual immorality, debauchery. What lasting good has come to society from free, casual, and reckless sex decoupled from marriage between one man and one woman? That's what those two words mean. Anything outside of the marriage bed, sexual immorality, debauchery, pornography, everything else you can think of that's not defined by that narrow, that's what it is. What good has come to our society from it? Are women and men in our culture happier today because of all the free sex everyone's having? Separated from marriage? All the porn that's getting consumed? Are we better off? The use of antidepressants and drugs in our country that's as high as it's ever been in our history would lead us to believe no. That following the ways of the world into selfishness is not helping us to thrive. What about dissension and jealousy? I looked up the Greek word there. If you go back to the original Greek, dissension, it's actually, it's actually social media. That's actually what it translates to in the original Greek, social media. That's how it's used. <laughs> it's true. Seriously, I looked up the word. Listen to the definition. for. <laughs> it took you a little bit, but you got it. I looked up the word for dissension. Let me give you the definition. Expressing differences of opinion with a large measure of antagonism or hostility. Isn't that basically how everyone uses social media? Here's my opinion, and here's why you're an idiot for not, di- for not agreeing with me. Right? Dissension. Listen, I understand there are times to disagree. But brothers and sisters, matters of opinion do not rise to this level. And there are a lot that we've elevated, matters of opinion that we've elevated to matters of eternal significance. If we're going to disagree with others, let's make sure that we do it in love, with respect and grace. And let's also make sure that it's an issue of eternal importance. For example, how loud our sound system is. Which, sound guys, way to go. You're getting it figured out. It's been a little bit of an issue, right? Too loud, too, too soft, driving in the middle. Is that a matter of eternal significance? No. We're trying, we're working on it, right? It's a matter for discussion, not dissension. Whether or not our government has socialized health care. Ooh, he's hitting a button there, huh? Or whether we keep it privatized. Is that a matter for dissension or discussion? Whether or not sin is sin. Whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Not a matter for discussion. Settled facts that are cause for division. But even When we are to divide, Jesus did say, I came to divide families. Why? Because there are matters worth dividing over. 
Some of them that we're really amped up about aren't. But the ones that are, hey, we can stick to our guns, but we need to do so without hostility. We need to do it in love. Why? Because love is a debt we owe to God. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. Because love does no harm. Because love keeps an eternal perspective. Jesus is coming back. Love protects. And lastly, love seeks to serve Jesus and others over self. Romans 13, 14. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, as I'm preaching, I felt like I I just sensed your spirit in my heart remind me of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not rude or proud. It is not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrong. I pray, Father, that you would make us a people that exemplify what love is. Love is not easily offended. Lord, I said some things this morning that could be offensive. I pray that no one would take offense, that the words given this morning would be received in love. Why? Because as you said, love does no harm. My heart this morning was not to harm anyone, was to bring us back to an eternal perspective, to remind us what true love is, what it looks like, to remind us of the debt that we owe to Jesus for the sacrifice he paid. Help us follow Jesus in the way of the cross. Lord Jesus, if we have anything that rises to the level of Godship in our life, Lord, if, if there's anything, any political ideology, any preference or opinion that we've elevated to an eternal thing, would you bring that back into perspective for us this morning so that we might be freed up to love well and not to be divisive or live in dissension? Help us be unified, Lord Jesus, about what matters most. Helping the lost get found by you. Helping the found live free in you. We pray all of this in your most holy name for your glory and our joy. Amen. Let's stand and make some room.